Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and listen to us live anywhere in the world, but only if you download our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the uh, the podcast and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also finally invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. Before I jump into the rundown of today's program and get to our first guest, let me just start by saying thank you, thank you, thank you to every single one of you. Today commences year three for KBLA Talk 1580. We celebrated our second anniversary yesterday. I had a wonderful uh, outing yesterday with hundreds of people who came out to support us. And let me, again, start by thanking our sponsors for making that big second anniversary celebration possible yesterday. SEIU 2015, SEIU 721, the Black Pack, uh, Holly Mitchell, our supervisor, we thank you, the Weingart Foundation, Caltrans, uh, Jazzy J's Sweets, and they were good, <laughs> and K-Girls Catering, and it was good. Uh, it was quite a quite a festival yesterday, quite a moment uh, with, uh, again, hundreds of our listeners and supporters who came out yesterday to celebrate the second anniversary of this black-owned and operated talk radio station, the only one west of the Mississippi. And uh, I want to just thank all of you who came out yesterday and supported us, but especially those of course, who are listening right now and always listen to KBLA Talk 1580. This has been quite a journey over these last couple of years. Uh, a startup is a startup is a startup. It's not easy, particularly in a market that has almost 200 radio stations, a lot of competition. You're trying to break through. It's never been done before. And yet here we are uh, two years later, uh, again, today, commencing year three of uh, KBLA Talk 1580. Hope you enjoyed uh, Dominique's program today uh, live from South Africa. She'll be there for about a week or so, uh, broadcasting live here every single day. So only on KBLA can you hear uh, that kind of programming uh, brought to again us, uh, brought to uh, to us again live every day uh, for the next week or so from South Africa uh, with Dominic DePrima. and so we we got a lot going on here uh, at KBLA Talk 1580. A great deal more about this tomorrow, uh, but I can tease it right now. Um, just got word of this uh, yesterday. In fact, uh, an independent survey for the second consecutive year. Uh, conducted by Eviterus, has found that KBLA Talk 1580 is still, for the second year in a row, the most trusted, credible, and reliable talk station in Southern California. That's a big deal for us uh, and for our audience. And so we are just uh, pleased to have learned uh, late yesterday, in fact, on Juneteenth, <laughs> that the data was complete. Uh, we'll have more details about that. A big announcement, uh, I'm sure, tomorrow. Uh, with a press release uh, giving more detail about that reality. But uh, just a big deal around here 
for us to be regarded by you and by Southern California as the most trusted, the most credible, and the most reliable talk station for two years running. And we take uh, that mantle seriously. So, again, uh, a, a great deal uh, going on here at KBLA Talk 1580. A lot to talk about. We'll get, again, to more of those details tomorrow. When I get more details, you will have them. But we're glad uh, to know that this study has found that people respect what we are attempting to do here every single day on this station and, indeed, around the nation. That said, uh, let me give you a rundown of today's program. And uh, again, we'll talk more about our anniversary uh, yesterday and uh, how much uh, fun we had and some other things that I want to share with you as we move through these next three hours. But let me tell you what's happening for the next three hours. In our second hour, the roots of the black working class, Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly argues that a tide of commentary of the almost uh, of the almost mythic white working class has obscured the hard labor and even the very existence of entire groups of everyday American workers, including Black folk. We'll talk about that in our two. Uh, the the black working class and its roots. A great deal to unpack with Dr. Kelly when we get uh, to our second hour today. In our third hour, two conversations as we introduce you to a couple of the new hosts you'll be hearing on KBLA Talk 1580 as we launch year three today, as I said moments ago, and all week long, we've got new shows I want to bring your attention to on the top of our three, a conversation with Dr. Tyrone Howard about his new show, uh, Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. It's called You Must Learn. We'll talk to Dr. Howard at the top of uh, our three, and on the B side of our three, we'll speak with the host of RSVP with Jill Monroe, uh, which premieres tonight, in fact, tonight at 9 p.m., a new program. Uh, called RSVP with Jill Monroe. We'll talk to her uh, on the back side of our three. Look forward to that hour. Uh, and so we'll tell you all about these new shows uh, in our three. And later this week, we'll introduce you to a few more uh, new hosts that you'll be hearing around here on KBLA Talk 1580 as we move into year three. That said, let's commence today's program talking politics with Washington Post columnist Philip Bump. Uh, Philip, welcome back to the program, sir. Good to have you on. How are you today? Of course. Happy to be here. I'm well. Good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Let me jump right in. I uh, just want to get some uh, housekeeping matters out of the way. Thank you for your patience on that. There's a lot to talk about politically, and I suspect the big news, the biggest news, uh, I guess depends on what, where you sit, uh, but one of the pieces uh, uh, that we have to talk about immediately is uh, the trial. The trial date has now been set for Donald Trump. It's set for August 14. Uh, and as you know, Philip, this U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, uh, who was appointed, appointed that is, uh, by Donald Trump, um, many people thought that she might drag her feet on this, uh, and it's still the case that she can once everything begins. There's no way this thing actually starts on the 14th of August. For those who know how these trials work, there'll be delays. There'll be delays for this, delays for that, delays for the other. But the fact that she actually set this court date so soon from now on August 14th has people wondering whether or not she's going to show up in ways that we thought she wouldn't. Uh, all that said, Philip, bump your thoughts. I mean, it certainly is the case. This border put us around I think everyone would be sort of flabbergasted, right? That is a turnaround. In let's, let's, okay, we got, we got, Philip, we got a horrible phone line. That's not the way to start year three. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm, I'm laughing, although it's not funny. Dominique came live from South Africa this morning, and she sounded like she was in the studio here uh, from South Africa. And I got Philip Bump on a phone line from Washington. It sounds horrible. Uh, technology, go figure. When we come forward, we'll get this phone line straightened out. Maybe I should send Philip to South Africa and do him live from there. Uh, I'm Tabby Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580, and we're glad about it. Uh, it's June, Black Music Month, a different black artist every day whose music we feature all three hours of our program. Today, that artist is the one and the only, I miss her so much, Whitney Houston.
Abby Smiley, this is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. The best of Whitney Houston. All three hours today as we continue to celebrate June as Black Music Month. And nobody, nobody did it quite like Whitney. And uh, again, we're going to be featuring her stuff, some of the best of her stuff, all three hours of our program today. Now, back to Philip Bump. Well, Hope, uh, we've gotten this phone line thing straight now. Philip, uh, talk to me now. Can you hear me now, sir? I can hear you fine. I see what I did is I flew to South Africa real quick so oh. I can make sure we had a good connection. <laughs> well, it's, right. it's working. It sounds a whole lot better. I thank you for doing that. Uh, back to there what I was go. saying earlier, uh, the Trump trial, the uh, the federal criminal trial, There's, I should say the, the, the federal criminal trial because there's so many cases, it seems, uh, that Donald Trump will be up against in the coming months. Uh, but the federal criminal trial brought by Jack Smith, the special prosecutor on uh, this uh uh, this documents issue uh, at Mar-a-Lago. That case is now set to begin on August 14. I was saying earlier, uh, for those who may have just tuned in, there are many of us who did not expect this to happen so quickly, so swiftly. There's been a lot of commentary about this district judge, Eileen Cannon, who was appointed by Donald Trump and all that we might expect or perhaps should expect with regard to foot dragging. Now, again, that may happen once we get inside of this case, uh, but many people are shocked uh, to wake up this morning and realize that the case has been set to begin on August 14. What do you make of that philip bump yeah i i I understand that sentiment absolutely but and obviously if it were the case that the you know trial began on august 14th that'd be pretty remarkable i I don't think anyone really expects it to right i mean this is this is not only an unusual case sort of broadly and theoretically it is an unusual case in that involves a lot of classified documents and so there are processes that have to be put into place in order for those documents to be reviewed by defense counsel, for those documents uh, to be cleared by the government, and eventually to ensure that the jury can look at them. There's, there are different precautions that need to be added here, uh, which adds this layer of uh, uh, bureaucracy, if you will, uh, that will need to occur before the trial can actually begin. And then, of course, you've got Donald Trump, who is extremely eager to have this thing be delayed until at least past the 2024 election. His, his only hope at this point is he's reelected president uh, and that he can sort of wriggle out of the news that way. But, you know, this is this is something that that he has a lot of experience in dragging these things out. He has lawyers that will file all sorts of petitions and all sorts of challenges every way he possibly can. Uh, the idea that this starts in less than two months, I think, is, is probably not, not going to happen. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, I, I can't I can't see with all that you just laid out. Um, this thing actually starting on August 14, but it does again make a statement um, that she set the the trial date so early. Do you think uh, none of us can get inside of her head? But given that she's been spanked a couple times uh, by the appellate court for rulings that she's made, um, uh, given that she uh, is uh, not the most experienced jurist, uh, again, all this commentary has been written in the days preceding uh, about uh, again her lack of experience and and the trouble she's gotten herself in before being overruled uh, by federal courts, do you think that she was attempting to make a statement by setting it for the 14th of August? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly is the case. I mean, look, no one wants to go down in history as a failure or someone who's inept, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, not, not everyone is able to recognize their own ineptitude at times, and I'm not saying she's inept, mm-hmm. but fundamentally, I think she understands that her reputation now is as a Trump sycophant, which I don't think is what she wants it to be. This is one of the highest profile cases in American history, mm-hmm. right? This is an extraordinarily important case, and I think she very justifiably wants to do her absolute 
effects. Even if she's sympathetic to Trump's claims, which she demonstrated some sympathies in you know, the beginning part of this, even if she's sympathetic to it, she also certainly doesn't want to have it be the case that this whole thing gets overturned on appeal because she was acting in a way that was you know, suspect. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think she, she is very cognizant of, the, of what her reputation is and probably eager to try and uh, repair that to some extent. Yep. Speaking of Donald Trump, there are two things he said since I was last on this microphone days ago. Um, before the weekend commence, let me come to those two things and get you to uh, unpack to the extent you can fill up bump uh, these two uh, uh, recent statements by former President Donald Trump. So he was on Fox News uh, last night, um, Juneteenth, uh, and he offered a new explanation as to why he did not uh, return classified documents he took with him from the White House. So the latest version of uh, his um, uh, explanation for why he did what he did was that he was very busy. He was very busy and didn't have time to separate them from his personal belongings. I quote from the former president, because I had boxes, I wanted to go through the boxes and get all of my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to uh, uh, to NARA uh, NARA just yet. And I was very busy, as you sort of seen, close quote. So that's the latest uh, reason, the latest excuse right. for holding on these boxes. He was very busy. Uh, Philip, uh, Philip, your thoughts? Yeah, I actually wrote about this this morning, and I think it's important to look at this through the lens of how Donald Trump approaches everything, which mm-hmm. is a political lens, right? He always wants to ensure that his base stays loyal to him. Now I think that's existential. As I just said, his best bet of staying out of prison is to win the presidential election. I think he's, that's much more likely than it is that he beats these charges. And so I think what he's sort of doing there is just sort of throwing out for everyone who wants to argue on his behalf, here's an argument he can use. But fundamentally, it breaks down instantaneously. Everyone remembers that famous picture of all the documents spread on the floor at Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. uh, that was taken by the FBI and became sort of the face of the Mar-a-Lago search. Those were documents that were sitting in a leather-bound box inside of his desk in his office, separated from everything else. They were just documents, and they were some of the most highly classified documents. Six of them were labeled top secret. The three of those top secret secure compartmentalized uh, information. Those were highly classified documents sitting by themselves in a box in his office that the FBI then uncovered. He was supposed to have turned that all in in June in response to a subpoena. Those documents weren't turned over. There was no, he didn't need to pull his golf shirts out of that box, right? These are documents he set aside and that he wanted to keep and he didn't turn them over. And that by itself, you know, throws that entire argument right in the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, secondly, uh, was bragging, as you well know, about some classified documents um, to a group of people uh, and that became news uh, about the former president actually bragging about um, uh, documents that are highly classified to just random people. He has since said uh, right. over the past few days that those were just news clippings. I, I was just, it was it was bravado. I was just talking, but it really wasn't classified stuff per se. I was really just referencing news clippings. Um, your thoughts about his parsing that uh, statement in retrospect? Yeah, I mean, again, so he, what he's doing here is he's sort of presenting evidence to the American public, right? He, he is making his case as though he is a lawyer and making his defense politically. Mm-hmm. The federal, the, the Department of Justice knows what's on that recording. There's a recording of him having this conversation. They undoubtedly have affidavits from witnesses who were sitting there with him describing what they saw Trump holding or referencing, right? There's, you can hear apparently on this recording, rustling sounds as though he's holding something else. Those people will be able to say, oh, yeah, those were just newspaper articles, or they'll be able to say, oh, yeah, I could actually see that was that, you know, I got classification markings on it. Trump doesn't have to worry about that when he's just talking to the public, right? Mm -hmm. He's not under oath. He can make up any lies he wants to make up. But 
the rubber hits the road once he actually gets in that courtroom. And if that's his argument in the courtroom, the government's going to be able to say, well, here's the recording. Everyone can listen to it. Here's this affidavit or here's testimony from this witness who says that's not actually what occurred. And then he's in trouble. But again, that's not the fight I think that he's focused on. I think he's focused on this political fight. Yep. I get that. Uh, and it's not, you know, it, it's not not news here to, to you or to this audience uh, that he continues to appear on various news programs, continues to uh, put out statements on his truth social uh, media platform. Uh, and obviously he's running for president. So it's it's going to be interesting to, yeah. to watch how he continues on the one end to run for president uh, and discussing, you know, political issues that he has to, to address as a candidate. But taking these opportunities um, in the media to continue talking about this case, about this pending trial. Now, in any other situation like this, a judge would immediately issue a gag order uh, and you couldn't talk about this stuff. Uh, Donald Trump has not been uh, subje- subject as yet to a gag order, but it seems to me that this kind of, you know, these kinds of public comments at some point are going to impact this case. That's a long way of asking whether or not you you expect that at some point a judge that he appointed, Judge Cannon in this case, is going to at some point slap a gag order on him. And if if, in fact, she does that, how does that work? Well, I think the federal government has zero interest in having a gag order, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say he does, he chooses not to testify uh, during the trial itself, right? right? He can't be cross-examined. Every single thing he said, everything he said to Brett Baer in Fox News yesterday, all of that stuff is admissible, right? They can say, okay, here's what Donald Trump said, to, they, and they can present that to the jury, right? All of that stuff is admissible. The federal government is happy to have him go out and talk, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the gag order prohibition, such, you know, prohibitions like that, to, you know, if, if he started talking, for example, about sources of, of the intelligence. Like, we got this document because we have a spy who, you know, is married to Vladimir Putin, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you're going to want to put a gag order on that. But I'm sure the federal government's totally fine with having talked as much as possible. You know, this may be one of those unique situations in which the, the, the defendant's own lawyers are like, hey, let's get a gag order on this guy because mm-hmm. he's certainly not doing us any good. Now, I was going to say, his lawyers um, may want that gag order. I, I take your point that the government wants right. them to just keep on talking, keep on talking. The more you talk, the more evidence we have uh, uh, to bring into the case, into the trial. I get that part. But you're right. His own lawyers at some point may want to shut him up. Good luck with that. No other lawyer he's ever had yeah, right. has succeeded at, at shutting him up. But but <laughs> but but it does, it does raise this question, though, um, that I want to get to that I was reading about this morning. So much of this stuff is classified, obviously, classified information. And speaking of how delayed this case is going to be, there is a process that has to be, you know, addressed for how his own lawyers get access to these highly classified documents. I mean, that's the point that nobody's supposed to see this stuff. So but 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 his lawyers can't, you know, reasonably defend him at trial if they don't have access to the stuff that, you know, that that that. The federal government is is trying him for with regard to uh, these uh, these documents and these boxes at, at Mar-a-Lago. It's a complicated matter. I mean, what what do you know about that that I don't know about how his lawyers even get approved to read these classified documents? Yeah, no, you're right. They have to obtain security clearance. You know, so ter- security clearance is not impossible to obtain. You know, right. There's hundreds of thousands of people in the United States that have security clearance, including, you know, government contractors. This was the big thing when Edward Snowden had all those leaks about a decade ago, was how many people had security clearance. So, right. so it's easy to obtain. But then again, when we put this in the context of Donald Trump wanting to slow stuff down, 
Donald Trump also fires his attorneys every month, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say that he has a new set of attorneys. He doesn't yet have a full legal team for this case, but he gets a new attorney. They start next week. They go through the classification process. That takes two weeks. They get up to speed. They start it, and then Donald Trump fires him, and he got to start over, and you have a new lawyer, and that person has to get You know, there are ways in which, and you know, I think after a while, the court would intervene and say, you know, tough luck, you can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. But you're right, that does introduce another uh, slowing mechanism, if you will, that Donald Trump can take advantage of. Uh, but for good cause, like, obviously, we don't want, you know, Donald Trump to, to hire a, a Russian oligarch to be his attorney, who's then granted access to these things without going through a security plan. Yeah, point well taken. Um, uh, all that said, uh, the case is set, at least for August 14. Don't hold your breath uh, about it actually starting that date. Uh, but uh, at least we know that there is a beginning uh, to this process. Uh, we'll see how long it takes to actually get this thing to trial. But the process will all begin uh, on August 14th. And U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, appointed by Donald Trump, will oversee this case. We shall see. And we'll, of course, be covering it here uh, on KBLA Talk 1580. So much more political news to get to in this first hour of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk I'm Tavis Smiley. That's Whitney Houston as we celebrate June as Black Music Month. We're playing the best of Whitney Houston. All three hours of our program today, as we do every day during the month of June, we pick a featured artist, and uh, they become our artist in residence, uh, as we say around here. And so uh, today, Whitney Houston is our uh, featured artist of the day. So the best of Whitney, all three hours today, again, in June, Black Music Month. I can't imagine the soundtrack of my life. Uh, without Whitney on it. Yesterday, we had some great artists uh, who performed at our second anniversary celebration. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the second and third hours of our program. Uh, but um, love music, love music, love music, as I'm sure you do as well. Uh, in this hour, we continue our conversation now with Philip Bump, Washington Post columnist, talking about uh, so many trending political stories over the weekend that we wanted to get to. Uh, Philip, before I move off this Donald Trump thing, one other quick thing on this. You said earlier in this conversation, and I made a note and I didn't get to it quick enough before news, traffic, and sports, but that's why I'm glad to have a whole hour with you. Um, you mentioned that uh, Trump's only hope to avoid all of this or to at least not. Let's get back to Philip Bump, Washington Post columnist. Uh, Philip, as you know, um, it's been a top priority for Republicans to tie Hunter Biden, the president's son, to uh, the president, this investigation, that is, of, of Hunter Biden. So a deal was struck this morning with the Justice Department. Uh, and uh, we now know that Hunter Biden has pled guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges. And this will allow him to avoid prosecution on a separate gun uh, charge, according again to a court filing this morning. Uh, I said a, a moments ago when we lost you that uh, uh, this is an issue that Republicans have been, you know, hyping for five years now. Uh, and now this issue uh, will go away. They won't have this issue uh, to, uh, to to beat the drum on. But what do you make of this deal with Hunter Biden this morning in the Justice Department? Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, this is something that had been investigated for a long time. And, you know, there, there certainly was a lot of heat that had been generated on the right. You know, New York Post is on this constantly, for example. Uh, you know, sort of uh, the way it had been used recently was as a juxtaposition to the charges that Donald Trump faced. Right? Mm -hmm. oh, well, what about Hunter Biden? Hunter yeah. Biden never faced any charges. Mm -hmm. So now, of course, he faces you know his charges, and now they're just the, the punishment isn't strong enough, right? There's there's always some moving the goalposts. I think what's really remarkable and sort of underrecognized here is that Hunter Biden was also at the heart of the newest effort by uh, congressional Republicans to try and allege that there had been this bribe paid uh, to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and both uh, the House Republican in charge of that effort and former Attorney General William Barr suggested, oh well, you know, look to Delaware. There's a you know this this evidence of the bribe is going to turn up in Delaware in the Hunter Biden investigation. 
and then it comes out that there's no charges related to any sort of bribe, right? It's just we, we have constantly seen Hunter Biden as the sort of scapegoat of everything nefarious that has anything to do with Joe Biden whatsoever, uh, and that this is resolved in the way that it is is intensely frustrating for the right as a result. I guess the question is whether or not this is actually actually the end of this. I, I'm looking at some social media posts, and I see sure. that that the Republican National Committee uh, sent out an email <laughs> not long ago with this with this message. The Biden Inc. scandal is not just about Hunter Biden, and it goes on and on and on. So one would one would would believe, one would hope, one would think that this may be the very end of this nonsense about Hunter Biden uh, trying to again tie this case Republicans are to the president. But if 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 you take that comment uh that email that headline from the rnc uh, seriously that the biden ink scandal is not just about hunter biden uh, they ain't gonna let this go inside the house yeah right there's two questions here the first is are there any further investigations from the federal government and are the there's still going to be investigations from the republican party the first question is actually still up in the air there was a quote given to cnn where the u.s attorney who was in charge of this case said uh this was an ongoing issue although hunter biden's lawyer came out and said we think that this actually resolves everything so it's not really clear if there's still anything left with hunter biden mm -hmm. but there's no question that house republicans are going to continue to try and make these allegations you'll notice they always talk about payments made to the biden family, right, mm -hmm. which is their way of sort of looping Joe Biden into these other things, even though there's no evidence at all that Joe Biden received a dollar. Uh, they are, you know, it is the case that Hunter Biden pretty clearly traded on his father's name, that he was engaged in sort of, you know, sketchy uh, business dealings and making money off it. There's, there's no real question about that. But they're trying to loop this back into Biden, trying to suggest that the president himself should be impeached as a result of it. And so far, neither they nor the Justice Department appear to have been able to, to, to lay any fingers on Hunter Biden in that respect. Yep. Uh, let me pivot now. Um, yesterday, of course, was Juneteenth, and uh, Juneteenth is the anniversary of the start of this, uh, the launching of this radio station. So you heard me say earlier, we celebrate our mm -hmm. second anniversary yesterday and uh, now off uh, uh, into into year three pretty swiftly here. Um, but I, I, I saw a piece you, you wrote recently that I want to tie into the whole Juneteenth situation, uh, the holiday, uh, and that is uh, a piece you wrote called The Political Fight Over Race Distilled. Um, you can't talk right. about Juneteenth without talking about race. As I've said many times on this program, to my mind at least, racism, uh, race is still the most intractable issue in this country. And uh, one does not need to look too far uh, to see that race is going to be a central theme in this upcoming presidential election. You look at uh, the right. comments made by many of their candidates, and I, Ron DeSantis, of course, front and center. But there are so many comments, I don't have time to unpack them. You write about this stuff every day. But so many comments uh, and commentary offered by many of these Republican aspirants who want to be uh, president, want to get their nomination. You think of Ron DeSantis uh, and others who've involved themselves in this case of Daniel Penny, now charged in the subway killing mm -hmm. uh, of Jordan Neely. And they're raising money for him and calling him a good Samaritan. I could do this all day long if I had time. You take my point. But again, you wrote a piece called The Political Fight Over Race Distilled. For those who didn't read that piece, unpack that for me. Sure. So this this emerges from a conversation the former President Barack Obama had with uh, one of his old advisors, David Axelrod, mm -hmm. last week, in which he challenged the way in which uh, non-white Republican candidates for office, particularly Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, and uh, Tim Scott, the 
senator from South Carolina, were talking about race and talking about their own circumstances. And it really was a neat encapsulation, and by neat I mean clean, mm-hmm. <laughs> not that cool. Uh, but it was a neat encapsulation of the ways in which the two sides view race, and specifically racism in the country. So Barack Obama made the very obvious case that there still exists discrimination, that there still are ways in which black people in particular are disadvantaged in the United States, you know, not only through, uh, you know, law enforcement, but through economics and so on and so forth. Whereas Tim Scott and Nikki Haley come out and say, well, I am proof that you can still succeed. And of course, Barack Obama's never saying, you know, Barack Obama, of all people, is not going to deny that people can still succeed, even if they happen to be black in the United States. But the point is that when we talk about the systematic part of it, what's systematic here is there is systematic discrimination. And while America theoretically has systematic meritocracy, right, that there is a system in which the best always rise, the discrimination runs counter to that. And, of course, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are trying to appeal to an electorate who don't want to recognize that there is systematic discrimination. In fact, white Republicans are more likely to say that white people face discrimination than they are to say that black people face discrimination, according to polling. So Nikki Haley and Tim Scott can't say that there is systematic discrimination, which holds them back. Instead, they have to use their own uh, life stories as this countervailing narrative to that idea, even though all they're doing is, is you know, in the same way that so many people are like, oh, you know, the, the killing of George Floyd, that was just one bad cop. Mm-hmm. You know, that that is an anecdote. And they're just basically applying anecdotes of their own. Well, I happen to be elected senator. And it's like, well, cool, you did. And you also happen to be, you know, one of a handful of black senators have ever served in the country. Right. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that distillation, I thought, was pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, how central do you expect, uh, you heard my comments moments ago, how central do you expect sure. race to be uh, in this presidential race? Uh, just hugely, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the beating heart of Trumpism is white people feeling aggrieved. And that is what, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis sort of expanded that outward. So it's, you know, white people who also happen to be anti-LGBTQ folks, right, mm-hmm. that, that, that he expanded the grievance out in that way. But that white grievance is absolutely central to the, the appeal Republicans are making to their most fervent voters. It's absolutely going to carry through the primary, and it seems pretty likely to be what they focus on in the general as well. So there, so, so there are the race wars, if I can put it that way, and then there are the cultural wars. You've written about that as well. Sure. Um, talk to me about how you think the cultural wars play themselves out in this campaign because the evidence abounds that we're not going to get away from that. Yeah, well, I think it's, it, there's a couple of things that, that play here. One underrecognized aspect of it is there are a lot more Hispanic and black Americans than there are gay and particularly transgender Americans. And so it's easier for Republicans to target, particularly the trans community, because there simply aren't as many of them. And there aren't as many of them who are known or friends with other people, right? You know, even if you happen to be a white American who uh, is sympathetic to Ron DeSantis, you probably still know black and Hispanic people, right? Mm-hmm. Just by virtue of, of being out of, you know, but the fact you know, the fact that a lot of gay people are closeted and the trans people, uh, there aren't that many of them, makes them an easier target. And I think that's part of why we're seeing them be targeted here. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it remains the case that by presenting the white, traditional, Christian, conservative population as under threat constantly, that's the way that you, you win votes in the Republican Party. Yep. Um, a couple of other things I want to get to in the few minutes that we have left here. Um, we has we had as a guest on this program. In fact, it was his first uh, in-depth uh, sit-down conversation. Cornell West, who's now running as a third-party candidate, as you know, he started out on the People's Party. Right. 
ticket. He has switched uh, since to the Green Party, still running as independent, but now running on the Green Party uh, ticket. Uh, again, I've known Dr. West for 30 plus years. He came in this studio. and We sat for an hour conversation. It's been picked up by most news outlets. A lot of people had commentary about what he had to say in that in that conversation. But um, there are two things I want to get to with regard to uh, 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 Joe Biden. Um, so RFK, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., um, is faring relatively well in some of these polls I'm looking at. Uh, again, it's it's early and who knows, but I, I'm seeing some decent numbers uh, for Robert Kennedy, uh, which could be of concern to the White House. Their, their position, of course, is to avoid and ignore all this stuff right now. But RFK is out there running on the Democratic uh, uh, ticket. Um, uh, wanting to be the Democratic nominee, I should say. Cornell West, of course, a, a third-party candidate. If he catches fire, uh, that could have an impact. Um, what say you uh, about the fact that the president, although one presumes, uh, assumes that he will be the nominee and you know it, it will be what it will be, but there are a couple of folk, RFK and Cornell West, nipping at his heels. What say you about that, Philip Bump? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, this is, this is, I think the best summary is this is a wildly unpredictable election cycle, right? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I don't think RFK poses much of a challenge. He's viewed much more positively by Republicans than he is Democrats. And I think as Democrats learn more about him and as his views, I mean, you know, to the extent that people were skeptical of how uh, the coronavirus pandemic was handled, I think most Democrats align with the opposite position of RFK on that, which I think is one of the defining things that RFK is running on. Uh, Cornell West is going to be very interesting. You know, green parties traditionally have not really played much of a spoiler role because they don't pull that much support. Cornell West is obviously a very different candidate, mm -hmm. uh, and it could be the case. You know, in 2000, we saw the Green Party and Ralph Nader actually potentially had, you know, shift that election uh, in mm -hmm. that case to George W. Bush. Uh, you never know. You know, we've seen the past two presidential election cycles have been settled by less than 100,000 votes in a handful of states. Uh, you know, if you have a viable Green Party candidate, whoever it is, but particularly Cornell West, uh, it's possible that could be a difference maker as well. Yeah, I, I said to Cornell West uh, publicly and privately, again, I've known him for 30 plus years. Um, I reminded him that the that many Democrats and folk on the left uh, still have not forgiven uh, Ralph Nader for that. Sure. <laughs> For that, for that egregious, uh, as they see it, egregious uh, move to, to run president. So I, I take your point. Again, I've said that to Cornell West. You, I hope you know what you're doing here because all the folk who, um, who love you today may hate you uh, in perpetuity uh, if you end up uh, getting into a Ralph Nader situation where you can make a difference and end up being a spoiler. Uh, uh, and again, uh, having said that to him, he's still running. So I digress in, in, in that regard. Philip Bump is Washington Post columnist, who I've uh, been honored to have on for this hour, as um, we do from time to time. Philip, thanks for your insights. Good to have you on. We'll do it again, my friend. All the best to you. Of course. Let me know. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Just like that, hour one is gone uh, as we start year three here on KBLA Talk 1580. Two hours to go, uh, two uh, more uh, great uh, hours. In the next hour, we'll talk about uh, the black working class. In our third hour, we'll introduce you to two of the new talk show host on KBLA Talk 1580 again as we start year three. We're glad to have you listening today to KBLA Talk 1580.